Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Ah, it's that time of the week. Welcome back to the latest in our top 10 series, series four of our top 10s lists. And we are back at wonderful Silverstone here recording as uh, we're on the old start finish straight and uh, here with our guests to record the podcast today, the first of which our chief editor, Kevin Turner. Kev, we had a little wander round between the recordings admittedly hunting for coffee, of which we found none. Um, but it's all it's all full of... of um, trucks and uh the the gb3 cars are testing here and even at this level uh and some gt cars as well it it looks they're all lined up like formula one would be the guys are out cleaning the trucks all the hospitality of which they have at this level of racing it all looks pretty pucker back there yeah with the british gt and gb3 trucks there they i said you know i said didn't i was around like this is what an f1 paddock probably would look like in the 90s when they were still before everything got complete yeah the palaces yeah yeah so yeah it's very high level you can just see when the cars come past as well they're all you know spotless and perfectly turned out and the level of even what you would consider to be a you know, national level, actually even club races, hmm. you know, the level of preparation at, whenever I go to a clubby these days, you know, there aren't those kind of, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they used to, you know, the back half of the summer, the grids used to look, be a little bit doggy. You haven't seen my car, have you? Uh, not, for, <laughs> not for a long time, Gary. I've been, I've been trying to get, uh, trying to give uh, Gary and Ed Straw prods to get back into their racing, but... Uh, I think uh, other priorities. Don't you mean Charles Godfrey? Charles, well, I don't know if we want to give away... I don't know who Charles Godfrey is. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently said... You've never met him. (laughs) Apparently someone said he looks a bit like me. uh, Well, that that leads on to our second guest of this podcast. If you've heard the first two shows in this new series, you'll know we're joined by Gary Watkins. And not Charles Godfrey. No. uh, Who, uh, once again, is here to chip in on one of Kev's top ten lists. And uh, James Newbold, we've dragged you up to the Midlands from deep in the southwest. So you've got a heck of a journey home, but thank you for coming up to be part of these podcasts today. I spent a lot of time covering British GT over the last few years, so um, it's, yeah, quite nostalgic for me to be sort of surrounded by all these trucks again. Very nice. Right, here we go. Now, previous top tens in this series, We well, last week we were talking about the greatest races, which did require quite an in-depth analysis of each event and the drivers and the teams, etc. This one, I suspect, well, we're just talking about single incidents, heartbreaking moments or heartbreaking retirements from Le Mans, Kev. So actually, these are about single incidents that happen. So maybe the stories will be a little bit shorter, but it's still a fascinating top 10. Uh, let's get into it then. What's at number 10? So number 10 uh, is Aston Martin Ams denied in 2015. What happened? Pedro Lamy, Paul Dallana, and Matthias Lauda were uh, the, they kind of one of the top GTE Am combinations in the World Endurance Championship. For a long time. For a long time, yeah. They, yeah, they won the 2017 crown. They won a lot of races. They were usually you know, at the pointy end. But somehow they never seemed to quite get it together for the 24 hours until, mm. uh, or rather, I suppose this is kind of towards the beginning of that period, actually. It just didn't go well for them after that either. 2015, 
they really looked like they had it in the bag. They were well well clear, um, and going into the final hour, it you know it looked all done. Um, but then Dallon lost control at the force came on on old tyres uh, on his outlap, uh, and and that was it. The, the vantage the Aston Martin vantage was was too damaged to continue, and it handed victory to the SMP Ferrari. So uh, yeah, it was uh, you know we. Obviously, as we get higher up this list, we'll be talking about overall mm. victories and, and things that maybe got even closer to the end. But I think, um, you know, a bit of a sort of, we've got to, I think, acknowledge the sort of the, the, the other classes and the amateurs that actually, you know, contribute to making Le Mans what it is. That was a particularly good combination that was successful in lots of places. Uh, and the fact that they've never, you know, and Dallon has now retired, he's retired since uh, since I wrote the piece, you know, it means that, that, that like Anthony Davidson, he's never quite got that victory at Le Mans yeah. that, he, that perhaps he should have done. So you've got to start somewhere, number 10 on the list, the last hour of the race, but we will get closer towards the end. Well, the most amazing thing about this, or not the most amazing thing, is it's it's so sad for Paul Dallalana because he's A, such a lovely guy, and B, he's just like a really good AM driver, a bronze-rated driver. And he probably won't mind me saying this, but he he's bloody quick whilst carrying a lot of inbuilt success ballast. Okay. You know, he's a, he's, he's a successful businessman. He clearly doesn't have time to go to the gym. I don't know if, he, if he's got the motivation to do that, but he, on the track, he's certainly got the motivation. And he, he is an excellent driver, you know, and I think he was, one, for a long time, he was one of the standout, Ams. Perhaps, you know, in the last couple of years, it's it's changed a little bit. But let's not forget, he won at Sebring, a great victory at Sebring last year, uh, at the, the WEC Sebring round. But the interesting thing about this story is that basically that Aston Martin run by the uh, in-house AMR team from ProDrive, it, it run out of tyres, basically. They didn't have any fresh tyres left. And normally the AMs get sent out on, on fresh tyres. And the team said, you know, it was Dalalana was in the rotation. It's his car. He pays the bills. <laughs> Obviously, you know, it was in, in the script mm. that he should finish. And the team said, well, just the way it worked, there were no tyres left. And they said, are you sure you want to finish? And he goes, yep, it's my car. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, I'll be okay. And, and he, he wasn't for chicane. And it, uh, big shunt as well, know. so couldn't carry on, couldn't yeah. continue, couldn't get back to the pits. So ah. yeah, it's it's so sad. I'm I'm when actually that when it was announced just just a a, a couple of weeks ago that he he was stopping his wet campaign this year mm. before the the spa round in at the end of April I remember thing, uh, this was what came into my mind <laughs> straight away not the fact that he won the championship but the fact that he never won Le Mans but did uh, come so close and all yeah. you know all for the want of one set of tyres really he did it all you know and he was a stalwart of the series and actually when he first came in he actually ran in pro and mm. you know far from disgraced himself let's move on the next heartbreaking moment at nine so this is actually further out from the finish but it's for an overall fight, so you know, right. up the different. Okay, so this okay. is a, so 1961 Rodriguez brothers. So Pedro right. and Ricardo Rodriguez. Uh, uh, you, I think in a previous podcast we've debated as to who is actually the better because mm. everyone always says Ricardo, but I'm not actually convinced about that. But at this stage, yeah, they were they're both quick, um, and we're into a period where Ferrari don't really have much in the way of opposition at Le Mans, but they are driving the North American racing team Testarossa. And they go up against the works team <coughs> of Testarossas and the and two two four six SP. It boils down to a fight really between the Testarossas of Olivier Gondomier and Phil Hill and the Rodriguez brothers. Yeah, and they make a real fight of it. You know, they have an early delay. They're charging back after fourteen hours. There was just ten seconds separating them, and they basically got the crowd on their side. You know, these young young Mexicans in a privateer car making the race more interesting. Uh, and yeah, would they have won? Probably not. I think Could they, have they would have been a second. I think they were probably still striving. Uh, yeah, they'd lost too much time, really, with a misfire and had fallen back. So they were on a recovery drive. They probably wouldn't have. I don't think they'd have, they'd have got the win. But okay. They, they, you know, so it's not a lost win like we're going to get to later on. But uh, the, you know, in the end, the, v, the V12 the V12 broke and they were out of the race. And there was a, you know, the, the reports of the, of, the, of the time do talk about the crowd really responding to that and giving them a cheer. And it really took the... They sort of single-handedly really made the race interesting against the works teams. Funny enough, there was actually an even later retirement. One of the uh, GT Aston Martins just couldn't get started after its last stop. Mm. So... 
Uh, but it, in terms of the importance of the race, obviously it wasn't you know, it wasn't up there. Yeah. Um, so it didn't quite make the list. That's why they made it really. So not quite as heartbreaking, perhaps, but more important for that particular edition. But heartbreaking for the brothers in that Ricard, what would go on to happen to Ricardo? Yeah, so obviously Pedro went on to win the race and actually should have won it more than once, I think. Yeah. He did go on to win the race in 1968, uh, but yeah, his, his, his brother was killed in the non-championship Mexican Grand Prix in yeah. 1962. Uh, and he's one of those sort of great lost talents, what-if type stories. Yeah. And, you know, it's just... it's it, Part of the narrative of Le Mans is the privateer and, you know, dotted throughout history are the, the great privateer victories, you know, We'll look at Yurst doing it uh, with two different Porsches mm-hmm. uh, twice in a row in uh, 84 and 85. Only one of its victories with the WSC 95 in 97, I count as a privateer victory, but that's probably uh, one for another time. But yeah, it's, it's, part of, it's, part of, it's part of the tradition of Le Mans, isn't it, privateers? And this is one of the great things when the privateer almost overcomes the works. And yeah, and we, we, yeah. I just love that. We all like that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And obviously, uh, say reading the reports of the, t- I think Autosport basically have said, you know, that thank goodness for NART and the Richard yeah. Rodriguez brothers for kind of saving the race, really, when there's no one else there. I mean, how privateer do you think? Well, I no. mean, that's all, that's a classic one, isn't it? How privateer? <laughs> well, I mean, we do know that there have been times when sort of work supported. I mean, obviously, he wasn't in, you know, he was mm. very close to Enzo Ferrari. He'd won Le Mans with a Ferrari, so I'm sure there was some help but on the other hand I just didn't think Enzo wanted them to beat the beat the works cars either yeah right let's move on and in eighth place we go way back yeah so I cheated in the entry but I'm gonna on uh, in the article I'm gonna try and nail it down to the one so uh I'm going for the 1926 the the Bentley effort uh uh Rob they were robbed so well it was a blunder you see it's another blunder so uh Basically, you've got Sammy Davis in the last remaining healthy Bentley charging after um, the Lorraine Dietrich um, that was in second. So it's not it's not quite for for the win this one. Uh, and uh, he basically gets onto the to the back of it, uh, and and with half an hour to go, sailing with fading brakes. Yeah, he's obviously got the you know the, the red mist or whatever, uh, uh, and make and makes his attempt to pass at Mole Sand Corner, goes into hot and goes into the sandbank. Not the first or last Ugh. car to see a sandbank at Le Mans, um, but because it's so close, so normally you'd get your shovel out, you dig it out, yeah. and you'd get and you'd carry on. That was not an unusual thing in the early days. Of, well, actually, even up to what the sixties, really, they were still doing that. Um, but because it's so near the end, he runs out of time to dig it out, oh. so he gets no no result. Um, Lorraine got a one, two, three. Um, the, but the nice thing about this story is that that very chassis comes back the following year, the year of the big White House crash. It's the one Bentley that survives that accident with a twisted chassis and frame and all the rest of it and and eventually staggers to victory. So mm. they there's a kind of a nice they kind of got they got it in the end just a year later. But but so in, in terms of when the race was run in the early nineteen twenties, were the drivers tell us about what the racing was like then. Were the drivers on their own? Did they have mechanics with them riding alongside? Oh no, no riding mechanics. There. So it was the driver on their own, they had a shovel somewhere on the car or did you get one from well, a, I think you know the side of the road era they did yeah uh, you basically had to work with the kit that you could yeah. carry dig the car uh, around no one could help you either I think you, in fact this lasted at Le Mans for years and years didn't well, it it's you still could, the case yeah. outside assistance yeah. is banned um, so you can have a mechanic over the wall shouting instructions to you or over the arm silly code. idiot get the shovel out <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> dig yourself yeah. out son but you can't he, he can't help you and he can't give you any tools or anything like that and there's a famous story in 79 when Kramer won the race Porsche were there. Kramer won it with their privateer K3 935. Uh, Porsche were there with the 936, and the car X was driving had a uh, a problem, uh, and suddenly I think it was uh, it was at one of the drive belts. I don't know if it was the alternator belt or or whatever broke, and suddenly all of a sudden the car um, 
restarted soon after Ix had been passed a big, nice baguette because obviously he was hungry, you know, stuck out there on the circuit. (laughs) And the story goes is the the baguette contained a spare alternator belt. (laughs) Now, you know, a lot of these stories have probably been embellished, but he was disqualified for outside assistance. That is is fact. Whether, Whether there was some ham and cheese involved, I don't know. I love it. Uh, James, do you do you go back do you like to look back at, at this, you know, proper era of 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 Le Mans racing? Is it something that you you do? You look back at that era or is it you more interested in something more recent or what? I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, we talk about when it comes to it's, it's that old debate of who's the best driver of all time and the answer is often well can you really compare somebody that was you know driving in the in the fifth in a in a formula 1 sense in the 50s yeah. to now and le mans as a race has changed so much from the days when you know people would drive single-handedly for much of the duration um don't want to say too much more about that because we might give something away mm. but um it has changed such a huge amount in in those days to now you know the ubiquitous three driver lineup mm. whereas that was not the case you're on your um, own do you a pair of gloves not really cap maybe well let's not forget <laughs> that some drivers used to smoke in the car you know into the 80s champagne at pit stops yeah was another one wasn't it all right let's move on and in seventh place on your list of heartbreaking retirements we did talk about this in a, in a previous podcast, podcast mm. but I don't mind talking about the 917 uh, at any time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this is yeah, 1969, the debut of the 917. Uh, no the car wants, that wouldn't last. The car that wouldn't last. No yeah. one wanted to drive it. No one wanted to drive it because it, it was so it's aerodynamically unstable, un, unreliable, uh, but very, very fast. Um, and Vic Elford believed that even. Uh, just stroking it along would be sufficient to see off everyone else. Right. And he was correct in that. Now, as I think we mentioned in the previous podcast, there's conflicting uh, accounts as to how hard they were pushing. Well, Richard Atwood insists that he was telling Alfred that he was driving too quickly and they didn't need to go that that quickly. Uh, uh, Well, I think they're probably both right, and I'm sure Atwood was saying that, but I think Alfred... No, just... Could have gone quicker. I think Vic was... A f- was probably a quicker driver. Well, he yes. particularly enjoyed the Narmon Seven, so he probably wasn't. He wasn't stomelining it. Yes, I don't think. No, okay. So he was That's still a very good it. verb. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think I could say it again after a couple of pints. That'd be yeah, quite yeah. difficult, I think. So they actually got it. Uh, yeah, they were way ahead. The other Narmon Seven broke. The quick nine oh eight broke. They were miles ahead of everything else, um, uh, and they kind of had it in the bag, really. Uh, and then in the end, the. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm just going to read you the the uh, the Elford quote that when I spoke to him about it, uh, I was convinced that if we drove it very carefully and didn't take any risks, it could finish uh, because it was 25 miles an hour faster than anything he'd ever driven before. Wow! So, and, and because it used to lift at the back, it was it was one thing when you're going down the Molson Straight on your own, yeah, wandering across the road. Like, the difficult bit was when the 911s that were on going down the back straight doing 100. 50 probably and you're doing 220 the approach speed is high imagine something on the hard shoulder mm. 70 mile on the motorway you go past it pretty quick so you had to kind of make sure that the wander <laughs> coincided with going past the right side of it. so you can understand why Atwood yes wasn't so keen yes but El- Elford just saw you know the straight line speed advantage of the car and goes hell this is Le Mans it's all about straight line speed you know again it. we're talking pre pre chicanes on the Molsan and he said well why wouldn't you want to drive that car and he didn't bin it it no, broke no no it, so with four hours to go uh, they had a four lap lead it was a finish and win job and but then the, the bell housing cracked and you know the, so it was, it was the transmission that did for it in the end uh, and it remained, you know, when I spoke to him a few years ago, it remained one of Elford's biggest disappointments, really, oh. because he never actually did win the Le Mans 24 hours. So, but it would have been a great story to have proved everyone else wrong, I think. And of course, it would have given Porsche Le Mans win one year, year earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Ix Herman fight that's so famous, huh? would we remember it for second? Yeah, yeah. If it was four or five laps behind the winner? Not sure that we would. So yeah. maybe it's good for the race that the car did break. James. Well, it's it's part of the story, isn't it? The, you know, it's it's part of the nine the the folklore of the nine seventeen, and we shouldn't forget that that car also had active aero, 
with all those funny flaps that moved that, that weren't just about trimming drags, they were about cornering efficiency. Yeah, it didn't really work. But, I don't think uh, so, no. <laughs> still, I mean, that actually had a bit of a warning with the, the quicker 908s with their low drag concept. Above, you know, at high speed, it was beginning to be a bit... Sitting up on its toes a bit. Can you sit up on your toes? Yeah. But then the 917 was so much quicker, it was properly into turning itself into an aircraft wing, really. <laughs> I mean, it certainly deserves its place, doesn't it? And I mean, the fact that Elford didn't win Le Mans is, is a bit of a shame, really, because he was, you know, he, he's often one of those drivers that gets slotted into the debate of who was the best all-rounder in, in motorsport, you know, a guy that could win the Monte Carlo Rally and then turn up and race a sports car. Uh, and he raced in Le Mans. Uh, he raced in Formula One, of course, too. One of those drivers who definitely was of that calibre, perhaps could or should have won Le Mans, but that's a discussion for another time. At that point in time, drivers flitting between championships was so much more common. Around that time, a lot of the top names on the grid were also in Formula One. It is almost a shame that now it's an outlier when somebody does traverse that. You know, obviously Alonso did it a couple of years ago. Hulkenberg did it while an active Formula One driver. Um, but it just doesn't seem to be as prominent as it was um, back then, which, you know, is, is clearly a shame. But perhaps understandable given the constraints yeah. of current F1 contracts. Uh, well, I think there's lots of, yeah, we could, that's probably separate podcasts on versatility yeah. over the years. But I think even in the context of his time, I think Elford was versatile. I remember he won the first ever rallycross event. He, and I think within a few weeks, he won the Monte Carlo rally, the Daytona 24 hours. And I think he made his Grand Prix debut not long after that. So, I mean, that's. It was pretty incredible, and he was. I think he did. He win a. I think he won a Trans Am race when Trans Am was proper as well. Certainly was a front runner. So, someone who, um, yeah, maybe we should we should do a piece on Vic Elford at some point. I think he deserves a. Where would he be in a, your sort of most versatile drivers? Is he up there in the top five? Oh, I think all five. <laughs> We'd be in. It'd be in my top ten. He'd be in my ten. He'd be in my ten. Just off the top of my head, he'd be in my ten. Yeah, I think we did a versatile drive all round. Well, I, I remember reading one, and, and I can't remember. That who it was and Sterling Moss came out top but you see I put Mario Andretti top well that was the debate we had me and me and Ed Straw had that very debate yeah last one before we take a break in your heartbreaking moments so number six uh, is Ralph Kellner's uh, now I put 97 and 98 but really I think the one that we should talk about is 97 because I mean it's fire right mm. so <laughs> this was the 911 GT1 Evo which in 97 wasn't really the car to have in FIA GTs but was mm. competitive uh, was competitive at Le Mans. It kind of had the edge over the Yoast uh, TWR Porsche that it didn't, that its predecessor didn't have. Right. In well, I'm going to correct you there. It had the edge over the. F- it was going to win. It had the edge over the first half of the race, but over the second half of the race, it was nip and tuck. Actually. Yeah, but it had the. It, it was had out that front. sort of mm. that buffer, and and the Porsche, the the Yoast car wasn't quick enough. Yeah. to pull it back and and very uh, uncharacteristically Bob Wallach had crashed the other uh, the other 911 GT1 on Sunday morning so the the the, the Kellner's Yannick Dowmas uh, Collard car really should have won and it looks I remember again I was watching this on on the coverage and uh, then just uh, uh, to toast with two hours to go he had a lap in hand and then uh, yeah the car caught fire uh, as Kellner's went down the Molson straight it was a proper fire as well like was it, it was one of those ones on where on fire get out the car bail type uh, jobby wow. uh, and actually one of the McLarens caught fire shortly afterwards I think was it just before just after uh, 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 there were two, there were two, two, two McLaren fires, one was in practice and one was in, one was uh, in the, the race, race. Yeah. so a pretty dramatic uh, I don't think I found when I was looking at what actually caused that an oil leak it, yeah, it was an oil leak, leak yeah. 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 yeah so that uh, that handed the, 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 Oast, the Oast car a second yep. consecutive victory yep. with a certain Tom Christensen at the wheel and then as a sort of postscript to that, just to sort of really rub it in, Kellen is also in the same, uh, the Toyota in 98 that we mentioned before, uh, that Jerry Bootson was leading with um, when the transmission failed with uh, 80 minutes to go. So twice in consecutive years, Kellen was in the right car at the wrong time or the wrong car? I don't know. Yeah, no, the first one, no, yeah, it was the right yeah. car. It certainly just looked like he was in the in the pound seats on both occasions and didn't end up winning. Well, so I thought he deserved to be ma- I think, mentioned. you know, they're both... You know, they were both ones that got away because in in 98 in the Toyota, the Toyota retired because there was a lack of oil in the gearbox. It's not entirely clear, and I've had different stories recounted to me, but one of them is that the uh, sump plug 
on their gearbox wasn't replaced uh, at the final time they changed the sort of uh, the internals of the gearbox which was a sort of quick change uh, thing they could do they had gearbox problems on that car it twice went into the pits to have the internals changed which was you know we're talking about eight minutes ten minutes or something like that so not a big big loss of time certainly there was no oil in the gearbox when it stopped and potentially the reason for that is a bit of finger trouble and the sump plug had not been replaced or not been replaced correctly and mm. fell out so I mean wow. that, that 97 race that Kellen has lost could have been a fifth win for Dalmas and it could have been the only win for Emmanuel Collard who's another one of those drivers who is a, Absolutely. a, a huge veteran at Le Mans um, over 20 starts and funnily enough I spoke to him a couple of years ago and he told me that when he he had a, a, a shootout with Jarno Trilli to replace the injured uh, Olivier Panis at the team that was just then renamed Prost in, in 97 at the behest of sponsors they needed to try a, a French driver to, to go with uh, to go up against Trilli well because Panis had broken his legs that same yes. day at the Canadian Grand Prix and the, and the call from Prost to Collard came immediately after he'd just retired with his you know a flaming car after yeah. after the race so um, and he was testing either the Monday or the Tuesday after yeah, Le Mans he, he said he was absolutely destroyed when he had to do this test and you can imagine mentally what what he must have been going through having just missed out on the you know a potentially career defining win to suddenly then have a a chance at redeeming his single-seater career several years after it installed in Formula 3000, and it, it didn't quite happen for him. But a funny postscript to that. that can you imagine getting that phone call after you just lost Le Mans in those circumstances? I mean, they do say, oh, you should be prepared for any opportunity, but it does seem a bit harsh if well, you've just done the, <laughs> just done the 24 yeah. hours. Well, even, even if he hadn't have just lost it at the last yeah. gasp, it would have been a tough call anyway, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, you, now you've got to go and test the Formula 1 car. And of course, yeah, Collard was a guy who did a bit of F1 testing, had a number of F1 testing deals, didn't actually do that many miles, drove quite a few cars, but never actually got his chance. And I think a few years ago in Autosport, we did the best 50 drivers uh, never to get to Formula One. And he was certainly high up there. As we head towards Le Mans, Kev and the supplement in Autosport magazine is being put together as we record, what can our readers look forward to seeing? I mean, we'll try and obviously cover off everything. There'll be an origin story by Quentin Spurring, a former former editor of Autosport. Um, yes. Because obviously 100 years, I think it makes sense to put it in context. Gary, of course, will be doing his usual sterling work, putting <laughs> together, uh, well, a, a look at, at the front runners. I mean, obviously, the big question is going to be, you know, can Ferrari stop Toyota, I suppose? Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, we'll look at, you know, it'll be the team-by-team team guide, um, and we'll we'll have a look at uh, we'll have a look at the LMP2 and GTM runners. So we'll have we'll have and some retro bits as well. So it'll be its usual thing. At the moment, the problem is containing it within the 52 pages. We might throw a couple of extra features in the actual mag as well over the the because because it's 10 days ahead, June yeah. 1st. So we might throw a couple of other bits in the in the mags after that as well. Wow, a 52-page supplement. That is what the big deal uh, the Le Mans is this year in its centenary year. And you can get that in your magazine if it drops through your letterbox. If you are not yet a subscriber, you can do that by going to autosport.com slash Plus, you can enjoy your first 30 days for free. Uh, you can pay the monthly or yearly usual subscription thing. And it means that you will get first-hand access to what we like to think is the world's best motorsport journalism. Uh, you can be the judge of that. You can get digital access. Or, if you like me, enjoy magazines and prints. I can't help it. Uh, then you can get that arriving as well. If you subscribe to Autosport magazine, it's not too late. If you get online and uh, get your subscription put through, uh, you should be getting that as one of the first magazines that you receive. Thank you for listening to the first half of our list. Stick around. We get into the top five on the way next. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Back into the second half of the podcast then and into the top five heartbreaking disasters at Le Mans. What's number five? So this, I'm going to throw this to Gary as a kind of a question because oh. I think this is 2010 and I think there are three separate stories that could tick this box. Um, so the first, I mean, so this is the year that Peugeot really, really should have won. Well, one of several years that Peugeot should have won. Really, really, really should have won. Really, really in should the, have won. In that there was no 08 scenario. No. Of, the, the, of uh, Christensen, McNish and uh, Capello sort of wringing the neck of their car, staying in the hunt and then the weather changing, etc., etc. This was... Nailed on. Nailed on. Peugeot much quicker. One, two, three, four, qualifying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, so I would say my first, uh, my first candidate for this would be the Stefan Sarazani. Oh, I see. Would you feel we're, do, we're we're not blanket saying? Well, I sort of did in the entry. My question to you is, which one of these stands out to you? So the the so because it was titanium Conrods, wasn't it? That was the problem. And that that so the car, the number three car, uh, no, sorry, that had already gone out. The Sarazan Manassi Montani car was leading on Sunday morning when its engine went bang. I was asked to go and ask Sarazan how he felt after that. Do you What's think the that, answer going to be? Oh, wow, exactly. Oh, I'm really happy about it. <laughs> anyway, something you have to do, don't you? Um, so that's one, but that's quite early in the race. It's not really a late, late failure. I quite like the story of the Eureka Peugeot, which was the only one left. It had already lost four laps uh, with drive shaft failure, and they did a sort of all-or-nothing charge after that, mm. with De, uh, Loic de Val setting a fastest lap that was quicker than the pole mark, mm. which doesn't happen much in contemporary motorsport. Back in the day, it used to happen quite a bit, because I don't think practice qualifying, there wasn't that, it wasn't so crucial, and there wasn't the difference between practice and race spec, like it was practicing for the race. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, but <laughs> with one hour, 15 minutes left on the clock, uh, the engine to that Peugeot blew up, so that was... <laughs> I remember watching that. That was pretty, pretty sad to be honest. Yeah, that's the, uh, the last because it's the privateer car as well. Yeah, and it was going so quickly. It was the only thing providing really any interest towards the end of that race. But then there was another late failure in the same race. <laughs> so leading the unofficial petrol class was the Lola Aston Martin of Darren Turner, Sam Hancock, and one Barazzi, and they got into the final hour when their V12 blew up. Uh, I think they were going to be fourth that's overall. Right, they were running fourth. Uh, uh, although you know that was. The Peugeot, of course, was a technical problem, which was the um, the, the switch to titanium uh, Conrads. The the, the the failure for the uh, Lola Aston Martin was that Juan Barazzi had put it in the gravel, I think at the second Le Mans chicane, sorry, the second Mulsanne chicane, and it had actually overheated while he was getting it out. So the damage had been caused some time before. But as someone I know, Sam Hancock really well, and uh, I felt I was gutted for him, actually because, you know, that would have been such a big result for him. Yeah, uh, such a cool car as well. Like that it was, was a thing of beauty, but, golf colours. Yeah, and the, and the diesel cars were fantastic, but you wait, you know, but the V12 coming past was, you know, was something else, really. The Peugeot story is, is an amazing one, because they, they switched to titanium Conrods, but the initial plan was to run titanium Conrads, Conrads? Conrods, which offered a, a power gain in two of the cars and the previous generation of Conrods in the other two cars, sort of split strategy. And what did they do in the end then for the race? Well, there was a supply issue on the original Conrods, so they had to fit the titanium Conrods. But they weren't concerned because the titanium Conrods had been through all the testing. Uh, They'd done their 36-hour runs at Paul Ricard, Mm. so they were confident that they would last. Of course, 2010... Even though Audi shouldn't have won with its R15 TDI, wasn't, you know, in hindsight, well, actually not in hindsight, we knew at the time it wasn't a great car. Even though they won and were behind, it's, it took the distance record at Le Mans. So it's the furthest a car has ever gotten at Le Mans. And the reason for that was relatively few safety cars and no mm. rain. I think there were four safety cars if, if, off the top of my head. There was no rain. So it was an ultra-fast race. And that just pushed the life of the 
Peugeot engine beyond what it had been tested. Wow. To. So they just, it was one of those cases where. Yeah. And this, this is, you know, this is what I've been told. And I get that, you know, it's fact that it was a quick race because we know that because it's the, because it's the distance record. So mm. despite the fact it was won by the car that wasn't the quickest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Right, these are the heartbreaking moments at Le Mans. What's number four? Well, I think maybe James, as he's uh, first of all, he's been covering LMP2 recently, and because he's spoken to people involved in this, perhaps you talk us through number four, which was the most recent update to this list in oh, 2021. WRT, obviously a, a very highly regarded Belgian team in endurance racing, had pretty much won everything there was to win in, in GT3, stepped into LMP2. Um, with a sort of view to earning itself a, a hypercar contract, which has subsequently happened with BMW. So they'll be in the top class at Le Mans next year. Um, this was its first crack at Le Mans. Frankly, it couldn't have been going any better with five minutes to go. First and second in the class. And that's despite the the second car was sort of delayed by a problem with the jack in the pit stop, which meant that they couldn't actually change the tyres. So they were struggling with the, the handling of that car and Jota were sort of closing in on second place. So that was set for a, a really good fight to the line. But the lead car, which was being driven by Louis Delatraz, Robert Kubica and Ife Yi, which won the European Le Mans Series title that year and was making a one-off outing in the WEC, was set to win. And then on the last lap, a th- broken throttle sensor meant that the engine just stopped as he was coasting down the hill at the Dunlop chicane the famous events of 2016 you look at that and you think well that can't happen again that's always in the back of your mind thinking it's an endurance race anything can happen up until the end but you feel pretty confident that when you're on the last lap when you're on the last lap anything that could have possibly gone wrong up to this point is likely to have happened so if you've made it this far surely you're not going to be sidelined at this point and it wasn't the engine eating itself it was a sensor they were able to get the car back after the race in Parc Ferme and it started. Well, it actually started uh, when they didn't get the car back until after scrutineering. So it was the, the following day when they uh, tried to start it up. Bang, straight away. Implicated in this story is a water leak from the drinks bottle of all things. Really? There was a study done by, uh, or a, an analysis done by uh, Cosworth who supplied the who supplied the electrics for the one make uh gibson engine in all the lmp2 cars and it was inconclusive so they don't know if the water you know they don't know really what what the problem was if the water caused it and they can't be 100 percent sure but you would suggest it is clear there was a water leak and we know that water dries after a while so when you got the car back x 12 hours well probably more than that 20 hours later the water has evaporated and the car kicks into life again and it was another one of these examples of the car not being classified uh so at le mans you don't cross the line you're not classified you know quite rightly so and it should have finished it should have finished third but then what happened was the second car with frines at the wheel with the old tires being chased after by tom blomquist what happens, you know, normally you end up with a sort of ceremonial finish as, you know, the, the cars sort of slow down and almost group themselves by manufacturer for the for the, for the the photos to say, you know, Ferrari got both cars, Porsche got both cars over, you know, in, in the days when they had um, factory GT programmes. So through all of these slow-moving vehicles, you've got a pucker fight for class honours and they're weaving their way through. And, of course, the flagman is stood on the track you know, expecting yeah. cars to be going past at a leisurely pace. But Frines has got Blomqvist right on his tail <laughs> and they're weaving through the traffic. And, you know, the, the TV commentary at the time completely missed the significance of this, which was, which was disappointing. But it was really, it was less than a second between them at the line. Wow. Frines just held on. And so simultaneously, you know, WRT has got the absolute desolation of losing a certain win on the last lap. But to then win it with the second car in those circumstances was, you know, the, the the team just didn't know how to, you know, react. When I spoke to Sebastian Vigier, the technical director, he said, you know, we didn't celebrate the win like we should have done because, you know, they were half happy and half devastated at the same time. And, you know, from different sides of the garage, you've got crew members crying and then others leaping around, jumping for joy. Just a completely surreal environment in their first attempt at Le Mans. Um, so, yeah... 
you really had to feel for Delatraz, Kibitza and, and Yi because they'd done nothing wrong, you know, a faultless yeah. race. Um, and yeah, all of them, you know, still seeking that first of Mon win. Um, you know, they'll be gunning for it this year. Sure. On that note about the finish, it wasn't just because I'd been following that on the on the on TV and the timing screens, and it was obvious forty five minutes before the end of the race what was unfolding, and that that was going to be could be quite close. And what surprised me wasn't just that the commentary team missed it, but nobody else seemed to pick up it either. Not race control, not the other teams with the cars. Well, race control, fin- because, like, you know, Freen's very nearly hit, hit the, the flag, man. Mark. Yeah. But also, you'd, race control, you'd get on the on the, on the blowout all the teams that are cruising around behind the Toyotas going, right, or you actually get on the to Toyota. Well, you I'm send a message to the screens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And go, right, lead, lead cars, get yeah. on with it. Yeah. Uh, it was incredibly <laughs> dangerous, wasn't it? It, it was. You know, to, you know, to watch it shouldn't really be allowed to happen. T- but then you shouldn't have photographers in the pit lane at a Grand Prix that well, we had recently. I tell, so. It's interesting. I, sort of the whole the, the reason we had the sort of the bat, that battle, which should have been the battle for second place, is it, what happened was the jacks failed on on uh, the Freen's car. And they and, and WRT just being a brilliant endurance team have a backup, which is actually it's like inflatable balloons that go under the car, pick the car up because it's obviously not like going up on your air jacks. They're only changing two tires at any one stop, which was obviously compromising the pace. But the other reason why Freens was caught hand over fist by Blancfist at the end was because the balloon somehow damaged the diffuser at the back. So he, he, he completely changed the balance of the car. And at the end of the race, he was saying, well, something was wrong with the car. And it actually took them a, a while uh, to, to sort of work out what had happened. But it was the rear aero was damaged. So it was just like was just a, there was a lot going on. Uh, yeah. But yeah, fully, fully dim- it, it, it's just so much going on. If, if you're doing a separate it. list of exciting Le Mans finishes, then this that's a whole different list, Kev, for Series 10 or something. <laughs> but, you know, th- this would surely be a, a, a strong contender there, even oh, if, you great. know, the fight at the front was fairly routine. And then everything in the context of what Kibitz has been through as well. Another layer of the story of coming back and his injury and racing and what would have been somewhat of a fairy tale. Right, let's get into the top three then. And number three. Right, so... The very prototype of this feature, or this top 10, yes. Start before I even started my career, I pitched a feature called 23 and a half hours at Le Mans to various editors, one of which replied, okay. which is why one of the reasons why I'm here now. Never actually finished that feature. Well, I, if I had, I'm sure it would need a lot of rewriting. Um, and the inspiration for that feature was the number three, which was the Brun 962 at Le Mans in 1990. And actually, it did 23 hours and 45 minutes at Le Mans so it was even surpassed the headline uh, that I'd come up with so 1990 is the first year of the chicanes Brun was one of the few uh, Porsche teams to go short tail might be better than the old long tail right can I just pick you up on the short tail long tail because they're the same same it's high downforce low downforce and the difference really is that the high tail is picked up is higher it's in, in the, the airstream, air yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, so the, the, it didn't change the length of a nine six two. It's it's one of the yeah. It's it's just it's just slang based on uh, <laughs> nine seventeen parlance. Yes, isn't it, that's really. Fair, that's fair. Uh, and I always prefer long tails anyway. And it uh, is. It wasn't. It wasn't that they ran the high downforce, the traditional high downforce tail. It was a sort of. It was probably a cut and shut version thereof that they developed themselves. Yeah, but they and this is at a time when there's okay. So Mercedes have boycotted the race, mm. but everyone else is there. You know, they didn't boycott big, the race. No, they decided not to go because they wanted to win the world because it was all about winning the world championship. Yeah, that but year. that's a nonsense, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you're going to go to Le Mans, aren't you? Well, uh, I don't. It is interesting, and I've never really got to the bottom why they didn't go. And just just for people listening who 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 don't know, basically Le Mans was thrown off or disappeared from the schedule quite late on in the year because of the whole Ferrari over the adding of chicanes. Were they be added? Could they be added? Were they going to be added? It was a sort of battle. Uh, between the ACO at Le Mans and FISA, as was the sporting arm of um, the FIA, uh, and it eventually disappeared from the calendar. Mercedes, don't forget who had introduced the C11 that year, and it hadn't actually been a 
an easy uh, sort of development curve for that mm. car because it, you know, it didn't it missed the first race, even though it it was obviously a bloody good car. Mm. You know, they chose to go away and develop, and after Le Mans, they just had a a completely dominant car. You could say it was the right decision based on ninety one, which we may or may not be getting <laughs> to later. You could you could say it was a bad decision, but that so boycott is not the right word. Sorry. Mm. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I'm not going to argue with Gary on that no, point. Yeah. But my main point was that it was still a strong field even without them being. Now that's yeah. fair, isn't it? I think oh, yeah. a lot of it's yeah, still absolutely. A good, and yet you've got what now? I guess we would call a pro am lineup. Really, so you've got Oscar Larari is supposed to be, you know is, is is kind of the, the who was the mega in the, the car, the, yeah. the quick guy, and and uh, ridiculously qualified second. Uh, and then uh, Hazus Pryor, um who was a good sort of journeyman yeah. pro, and then Waterbrun, the team owner, a competent am. So not so they qualify high, and, and actually Larari gets taken ill, doesn't he, during the course of the race? I think he was involved in a support race. Yeah, the Renault Twenty One uh, turbos. He had a <laughs> massive shunt, uh, so he drove a bit at the beginning, had to drop out, came back, but he he. He did drive in the night a little bit, but he certainly didn't do his um, the share that he would have the the run plan that the yeah. engineer had. Certainly, it didn't go according to plan. So you've effectively got for most of the race, certainly second half of the race, anyway, a, a useful amateur and the team owner, yeah. team boss, whatever. No, 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 no. I'd say Pereira was a pro, not top draw, perhaps. No, no, I, I you know, given if, you know, Jesus, Jesus, if you're listening, apologies. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, a great a great drive from both of them. Uh, I think they had a delay with a flat battery at one point, but otherwise it was a pretty clear run. And it would have been just a great, you know, they were splitting yeah. the Jaguars up front, 15 minutes to go. Uh, and it would have been a great, yeah, you know, it's another one of these great privateer stories, especially given the fact that they'd lost their kind of, you know, their, their sort of star qualifying pace pace guy, if, if you like. But they had a, yeah. a, an oil union uh, failure and, and uh, the engine died. Uh, with and it was a smoky failure. Smoky, yeah, old and it, school. And it happened down at uh, Mulsanne Corner. And in those days, which 1990 was the last year of the old pits before the, the pit complex that we now know was built. And so in those days, the signalling pits, so the drivers received their pit boards down at Mulsanne Corner. So there were members of his team there. He pulled, you know, he literally pulled off the circuit there and sort of got out of the car and collapsed oh. into the arms of his team. And I, uh, that was my first Le Mans. I was just a, a, a young journalist. And I remember feeling devastated for them because, because clearly, you know, I'd seen what, what those two had done, you know, against the odds. And I have to say, I was, I was in the pit lane at the time and I saw it happening uh, unfold on the big screen. And obviously there's a patriotic... Um, British crowd there waving their silk cup flags and they cheered because it was suddenly uh, a Jaguar one too and I thought oh that's a bit that's a bit mean <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah it is I, I, yeah I, I groaned I think but yeah. I, I but you just, when he walked past like they were all clapping him weren't they all the all the team yeah all the different team yeah. representatives and stuff so I think it was one of those uh a little bit like the well, our story we'll come to in a bit. Um, when rivals kind of, you get that close to the end from that strong a result. And I think everyone, it becomes a human story then, doesn't it? And yeah. it's not so much a rival as, you know, as, as someone that you can't, you know what they've been through. I spoke to Pereira about this race a few years ago and he said, yeah, that the car was even better than, than the one he drove in 86 to finish second. It was the best race car he ever had um, at Le Mans. So, you know, as you say, you know, after all the the toil that they'd gone through, you know, Pereja did, you know, maybe fifty percent of the race driving for, you know, what he believed could have possibly been the win if there was a problem with the leading Jaguar. He said they still didn't know precisely what had caused it; just the engine just died. Um, yeah, gutting. Uh, and I think it's still well, having no great... oil in it didn't help. Yeah, I think it. <laughs> I think it still covered a greater distance than the third place. The oh. car, the Nazis did actually did finish. They actually finished uh, in third. Wow! Um, but, but don't course, tell, um, don't tell Tiff that. Okay. <laughs> well, that was twenty three hours and forty five minutes. That's number three on our heartbreaking list. What's number two? Well, so this one isn't isn't quite. Uh, quite so late, but I think it's it's for the win. Uh, so I think that it trumps it trumps that. Yes, um, I think so. 
Oh, and it's also, you know, the whole story of it's, it's Pierre Levé and obviously his uh, his story of Le Mans is, you know, he's kind of mm. full, you know, tragedy turned up to 100, isn't it? So anyway, so he's he's got his, his own uh, Talbot Largo uh, and he's against multiple factory efforts. Jaguar, that we, you know, we talked about before where they made the mistake with the C-Type, quick Ferraris, Mercedes, uh, and he had his T26 uh, with a special body on it. Um, and he just moved through, moved through, moved through the field as others hit trouble. Um, and he was up to second after eight hours, and he he was comfortably ahead by half distance. Mercedes were running to sort of a sort of stereotypically cliched sort of Germanic, this is your pace yeah. uh, type thing. And and really, uh, he was too far ahead. They they'd kind of got to the point with four hours to go. He was four laps clear of the the first of the Mercs. Yeah, uh, and there was there was just no way. Uh, there was no way they was going. They were going to catch him, and he was driving solo. He did have a, a driver ready mm. to take over, uh, and then uh, with just over an hour to go, the straight six big end failed, and 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 that was it. And it was obviously yeah, it would have been a home here, you know, yeah. French car against all these works teams and the Germans. It's only it's less than a decade after the Second World War, so it would have been a huge moment. Now there's been kind of conflicting accounts of this over the years. So at one time, Mister Gear. So at one time he was it was thought that he missed a gear and blew the engine up. There's Is also, that generally I, I think it's been defunct now. Yeah, okay. I'd say it, 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 it's now I think accepted. Certainly, I've seen it more more than one source that he had been aware of an issue developing, and that's why he didn't hand over to his co-drivers. A little bit like the Lammers thing. I'm right, gonna okay. I'm gonna look after the car and try and get it home because he he didn't need to be thrashing it at that point. He was no. far ahead. He just needed to get it home. So I mean, obviously we. On, you know, no, it wasn't very difficult for journalists to ask him about that because three years later, of course, he was involved in the horrendous, you know, the horrendous Mercedes crash, uh, which is you know, obviously the worst accident in motorsport history. So, um, yeah, uh, this was absolutely nailed on number one on this list mm. up until June 2016. <laughs> <laughs> which but just, I just think the whole we don't, this is. The the drama is even is exacerbated, isn't it? Exaggerated by the fact that he was doing it on his own. Yes, and we know uh, Lewis Rosier sort of did it on his own when he won with his son, who did two laps, we believe, whilst uh, Dad had a couple of bananas. Obviously, knew the benefits of potassium. Otherwise, there's only one driver to have done it on his own, which is a Brit called Eddie Hall, isn't there? In a privateer Bentley post-war the fact that he was doing it on his own and lost it is just yeah and also it's so it's proximity to the conflict as well because it's still we're still in an era where it's you know the color the national colors are yeah he's in the yeah the blue the blue Torbert and it's the silver mercedes behind and the green jaggers and the red ferraris uh, and he's out front and you know if if he if he'd won that would be that have to be one of the most Mm. yeah that would has to be one of the heroic impressive brilliant performances in Le Mans history if it had lasted well for sporting an hour history and a bit. to yeah, do it probably to do would that be, yeah. over a full 24 hour distance the open cockpit cars significantly more fumes you can imagine than than drivers would have to face today yeah. and of course none of the human performance coaching that drivers have today or any of those things um yeah the physical effort <laughs> that it must have taken to to get to that point i mean there there, there are you know plenty of cases of of you know Raymond Sommer, didn't he? Um, in one of the uh, yeah, with Cinetti, he did. You know, the came most very close to winning in a you know pretty much a uh, almost all the way. But I don't think there was anyone that can you know can say that they came as close with a no, single-handed effort. Well, I don't think there were many single. There aren't many single-handed efforts. Well, I mean at Rosier because obviously he won it. And and did all bar two laps. And I think I think I think Sommer did. Most, I think it was thirty two. He won with Canetti, wasn't it? Uh-huh. And so and he did twenty two hours. I think. Oh right, okay. And, but then Canetti did the equivalent of forty nine yeah. with Little Selston in the in oh the yeah, baby of course, Ferrari. yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think I think that that's widely accepted that that was also the drive that got 
him the Mercedes yes. offer as well. So if he'd have won, would he have gone? Well, I'm retired now and I've yeah, done my yeah. thing. Because he wasn't he a young man, was he? No. So would he maybe maybe if that car hadn't broken, he would never have been in the 300 SLR in 50. Anyway, you know, if if if. But it's a whole sliding doors thing, isn't it? it we is do it bit, so often yeah. on these podcast uh, these podcast series. Okay, so that is uh, almost the end of our list. You've mentioned the number. We've mentioned the number one. What a controversial uh, pick! <laughs> wow, oh, I can't believe you went for this. Kevin. I think the top four pick themselves in this. Do you think so? I think the second. I mean, I don't know what Gary okay. and James think, but I think the second half of the list. You can probably move around. You can move people in and out. I think the top four are pretty strong. Bring they're so on. that's such big stories. They're so late in the day. Uh, I don't think uh, there could be a possible uh, replacement for number know, one. Yeah, no, I moment. think. I think. Yeah. I can't see how. Yeah, I mean, you can never say never because I'd have probably said, you know, ten years ago I'd have said nineteen fifty-two. No one's ever gonna. Surely that's never, especially the modern reliability of cars. So twenty sixteen. But to that point, that's surely a contributing factor, isn't it? How you know the reliability of cars in the modern era. Yeah, it's a good point. So makes, when something does happen, it seems it's like ooh, makes well, it that much. Actually, more. back in t- again in twenty sixteen, look at the the furore there was when Lewis Hamilton had a couple of engine failures in F one, and everyone was like, "Oh, it's biased, Mercedes biased, and Nico Rosberg and all this stuff." Because uh, presumably those fans hadn't been around long enough or couldn't remember that back in the eighties and nineties, yeah, cars were blowing up every yeah, other race. Right, yeah. Uh, so I think you get, get complacent about the, the reliability think, of modern racing do. cars. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mean we've we've talked about this on a on yeah. a on a previous one really, but, but we've got to talk about it again just we in do. case we, any we, of you we lose. Well, I mean, we Gary, you were there. I, I I was just watching. Do you want to talk talk through the the final moments of yeah, 2016? I think we were all knuckling down to start writing. Toyota had prevailed in a pretty good fight with the Porsche that eventually won the Porsche 919 Hybrid. They were on top and they came out on top. You know, they were quicker on. Sunday morning, you know, as the temperatures came up, Toyota had the advantage. They had a good minute over the uh, over the Porsche, and, and we're we're talking about Kazuki Nakajima, Sebastian Buemi, and uh, Anthony Davidson in the in the new TS 050 hybrid. Six minutes to go. Yeah, this is the this is the the closest we've got on this top ten. So twenty three hours and uh, fifty four minutes for the win. I mean, the so. disbelief in the Porsche garage. I mean, obviously, the Toyota team was devastated, and you felt almost like the people that were filming them in the Toyota garage almost should sort of turn away out of dignity. Yes. It, was, it was heartbreaking <laughs> there was to a watch. Few yes. Too many uh, cameras in people's faces you know, d- while dwell- they were crying, actually d- dwelling on it. But I mean, the the euphoria in the Porsche garage. Because it was so unexpected, you know, they were hugging each other, falling on the floor. Mm. Just Although I would say, if you remember, the, uh, I think it was, now Yanni was in the car, wasn't he? And so, uh, yeah, it was the other two who were sort of jumping up and down. And they were actually told by someone from the team not to sort of quite celebrate in that way. And they were group, you know, it wasn't just them, but I think it was, they thought... Yeah, we need to be slightly dignified, more dignified in this in this case. And the really interesting thing, sort of beyond all of this, was that it meant that Mark Lee, Bremen Dumas, Neil Yarny could kind of just stroke home for the rest of the World Endurance Championship. And it, it wasn't even a contest, was it, for the remainder of the no, championship? Because the they champ- didn't win a race for the rest of the season. They, I don't think they even got on the... Did they even get on the podium? <laughs> they were, seemed to win the championship by finishing fourth thereafter. <laughs> and, so you know, PK approach double, double points... <laughs> You know, skews skews the championship, doesn't it? You know, and that's and that's it was still it was a double case. blow because yeah, Toyota lost Le Mans and the championship in one fell swoop. Are we at the stage now where that shouldn't be? Is, is double points a bit? I can get why, but Le Mans such a big prize anyway. If it is the bigger prize and it takes and it's the bigger prize because it takes more winning, I don't have a problem with double points. You know, it's certainly better than an Abu Dhabi finale double points nonsense in F1. Well, exactly. It? And exactly. I have to say, I prefer it now in the calendar slot that it's in compared to when we had the sort of winter calendar where it ended up being the final race, where it almost seemed like Le Mans is the highlight of the season anyway. It doesn't need to be the sort well, of season it, climax. Exactly. At that point, I, I remember you wrote a column on that point, and I, I fully agree with you. The problem is that you know Le Mans will always be quite early in the schedule. If it was. If it was, if we, you could fit another couple of races beforehand, it would be it would be much better. 
but because it's always quite early in the schedule because june you know the racing year sort of starts in march it's not great with the whole double points thing well, that's our list. Our countdown continues to the centenary year of Le Mans, and every week we'll bring you another one of these top ten lists, these countdowns that we love to do as the as we count down to the big event this year. We'll also, of course, bring you a Le Mans preview podcast, a proper preview uh, sometime before qualifying on the morning of the seventh of June, and uh, whilst we are waiting for the the event to kick off. The day before, I think we will uh, we'll, we'll sit down and have a chat about why Le Mans is indeed the greatest race. And so lots of things to look out for in your podcast feed, of course, amongst lots of other things as well. Thank you very much for listening to this edition and we'll catch you on the next one. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.